Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, here once again with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy. How you doing? I'm doing well. I'm enjoying your expanded uh, greeting to myself and to the audience. Well, because we don't have a guest this week, so we have a little bit more time to, to, to be chatty. Yes. And it's not because we can't get a guest, because we don't want, really want to have a guest on every episode. Um, actually, we do have a guest, in a sense. The guest is, uh, is, is a plural guest. It's you, the readers, you, the listeners. Um, and when I say readers, I mean be, because today we're going to be addressing some of your questions. And it's nice that uh, many of you look at the website, read things on the website, akilamar.com, and respond to each other in the questions. So in that sense, you're readers as well as listeners. Right, because remember, if you're only experienced this, this podcast in an audio form, you're missing a lot of the great stuff that Andy has done on the companion um, website, all the show notes, the, the links, the elaboration, and the like. And that's the place where you, the uh, audience, uh, are most welcome to, to join the conversation, and today we're going to try to respond to some of the things that you have posted, uh, uh, comments and questions on that website. And one thing I found is, as we uh, earlier took part of a couple of episodes to answer some questions, then we immediately started getting more questions. So I think that, uh, that our audience is responding positively to uh, being involved in this way, so we're going to honor you right back uh, by answering some of the questions. And um, so let's, let's get right to it. Uh, we have a question. We're going to go in reverse order uh, date-wise because the more recent questions will address necessarily things that are either in the news or that are uh, related to, rele to recent episodes, so they'll be fresh in people's minds. Okay, so we have a question by a, a prolific questioner, Robert Mintz, um, who's been on a few times with questions, but they're all good, so, uh, so why not? Um, and he says, uh, in the debate-debate episode, so that's the uh, dealing with the, the filibuster, um, isn't Professor Amar much too easy on McConnell? He says that McConnell doesn't know what he's talking about and that he has convinced himself to believe things that aren't true. Isn't it much more likely that a person of McConnell's intelligence, experience, and access to expert help knows very well that what he said in his speech is totally wrong, but just doesn't care that he is intentionally misleading people? Thank you, Robert, for that excellent question and for several others. We're delighted that you're engaging the podcast. Um, so um, I can't get into anyone's mind. Uh, I've never met Senator McConnell. Um, you um, know, as do others in our audience, that I can be very um, fierce and critical of, of uh, positions that I think are wrong. Um, I try to counterbalance that, believe it or not, with a certain principle, um, set of uh, principles of what are called in, um, interpretive charity or interpretive generosity. Um, here are two elements of interpretive generosity which hasn't prevented me from saying bullshit, bullshit, bullshit seven times in response to, to certain things that I think are in a word or seven words, bullshit, um, hogwash, but, um, malarkey, um, <laughs> um, applesauce, 
Um, so um, malarkey, of course, is a Biden word and applesauce is a Scalia word. So this is already very um, inside baseball. Um, but one principle of interpretive charity, interpretive generosity, is to try always to identify the best version of the argument on the other side and, and respond to it rather than the straw man argument, the weaker arguments. And, but a second principle is wherever possible to uh, assume the best about someone else's motivation, assume that they are acting um, in good faith unless the evidence overwhelmingly uh, prevents that um, assumption. Um, so you might think, well, of course McConnell knows all these things are false and he's just spouting intentional falsehoods. And, and the harsh word for that is he's lying. But in fact, I believe the reality is all sorts of really, really smart people sometimes actually don't know all the, don't know all the, the, the facts, all, all the details, um, and they're not lying. Justices on the Supreme Court aren't lying sometimes when they say certain things. It's just, truthfully, it's a complicated world. They have difficult jobs. They, there are lots of different issues. They're not expert on all of them. Truthfully, they're not experts on any of them. And so one of Amar's, you know, a little uh, um, modest for the world is like no one knows anything at a, at a certain point. Um, you might think, well, surely senators know about the history of the Senate. Yeah, maybe they're not scholars, but they know about the history of the Senate. Actually, no, they're not historians um, and they're not scholars. And they have been taught. There is a tradition out there championed by someone who had the reputation of being a very scholarly, um, academical, um, if self-taught, Senator Robert Byrd, um, very influential senator, sort of seen as the, the keeper, the custodian of the Senate flame. And he had this whole elaborate law. Um, uh, set of ideas. I think they're connected to lost cause and and, and, and broader American myths all about the, the Senate and the filibuster and the founders. And I think it's all incorrect, but I promise you that's what most uh, senators have been taught by previous generations of senators. That's what Gary Hart told me way back when, when he first joined the Senate, he said Robert Byrd told him all these things, and he was inclined to believe Robert Byrd because he hadn't studied it himself. And I don't think McConnell has studied it himself. I don't think Senator Manchin has studied it himself in a scholarly way. And I actually take them at their words. At least they, they sincerely believe these historical um, and constitutional claims that they're, they're asserting. Um, because unless you give me compelling evidence otherwise, I'm going to try to um, give people the benefit of the doubt. Now, I don't with stop the, you know, the steal and birtherism and trutherism because um, and, and some of this anti-vaxxer stuff, and we're going to maybe come back to the, the vaxxer stuff at the very end of this episode. Maybe we're going to talk about um, Spotify and Joe Rogan and, and other things. But, so, um, but interpretive generosity, to conclude, for me, has at least two principles, even though I can be very harsh in disagreeing with folks. Um, and, and, and people on this podcast have heard that. I'm going to, one, try to interpret, address the best version of an argument on the other side, and two, assume the best about motivation. And I'm especially going to do that. I hope I'm going to try to bend over backwards with people that I actually disagree with more than agree with politically. I'm going to try to especially be generous to 
Ed Whalen, who's a really impressive person, and he and I vote differently on election day, and especially deferential to Mitch McConnell, because I'm a Democrat, and he's a Republican, and we live in a polarized world, and I'm going to try, even as I'm criticizing him, to take him at his best. Now, in the case of Senator McConnell, though, I mean, you made the argument yourself that he knows that certain things that he said aren't entirely correct, because he himself used the nuclear option um, to uh, allow the confirmation of Justices Gorsuch and, and Barrett. So uh, is not is that an example of bad faith? I don't think so, because I think even in the quote, and maybe I wasn't fully fair to him, there's a way of reading the quote in which actually he was talking about legislation, and he was trying to make a distinction between legislation and other senatorial functions. Now, at the end of the day, I think the logic of my argument that majorities can rule um, uh, is true across the board. In a box, um, uh, um, uh, with a fox, on a train, in the rain, here or there, you know. So on Occam's razor grounds, I think that um, once you've done majority rule in any context, you're saying actually the Constitution and, and uh, Article 1, Section 5 about Congress's, um, each house's rulemaking power permits simple majority rule. Just as, as a Lincoln is an Occam's razor guy, he says, my goal is to save the union. This is in a fa- famous um, letter to uh, um, Greeley, Horace Greeley. If I can save the union by freeing none of the slaves, I'll do that. If I can save the union by freeing all the slaves, I'll do that. If I can free the union by freeing some slaves and not freeing others, I'll do that too. So that's a logical position. My logical position is actually, if you can do majority rule over here, you can do it everywhere. But McConnell, I think in his head, tries to distinguish between majority rule for a confirmation process, which doesn't involve lawmaking, doesn't involve the House, um, doesn't involve presentment to the president, and ordinary legislation. So I, I think um, that's the, a Rubicon in his own head that he's um, set up for himself. Okay, well, you would think that, uh, I mean, I, I think we want to move on, but, uh, but you would think that if that were the case, that he would have said that. I thought, well, there's actually, even in the quote that we had, I think you can hear the word law or legislation at some point in that. And remember, I didn't hear the whole thing. You curated as possible that earlier or, uh, or later, he said something that at least in context is limiting the scope of his remarks um, to legislation of a certain sort. One final reason that I cut McConnell, uh, maybe a, 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 an undeserved break, you might think, Mitch McConnell is actually impressive, both politically and analytically. Um, He's impressed me in other um, uh, domains, like on campaign finance, where I don't agree with him um, across the board, but where I actually find myself more in agreement and disagreement um, with him on a really important constitutional question. Uh, On Citizens United, I'm completely with McConnell. So here's another thing just that our audience is entitled to know about me. Where you've impressed me on any issue, anywhere, I'm going to be inclined to be more respectful to, toward your position on something else, because at least I know that, that y- y- you're actually substantial. And I consider Mitch McConnell politically and legally substantial. I wish you were on my side on more issues. Okay. So our next question is from Bill Maniates. I'm sorry if I've mangled some of your names, audience members, but I'm doing the best I can on this, and I'm about to mangle another name, I'm afraid, in in your question. Um, He says, I would like to know Professor Amar's opinion 
of the North Carolina Law Review article, Is the Electoral Count Act Unconstitutional? by Vasan Kesavan, Volume 80, Number 5, Article 4, June 1st, 2002. I think we will be hearing more about the Electoral Count Act in the coming weeks, as it looks like there may be bipartisan support to amend the act. A great and topical question, the Electoral Count Act, um, and which was adopted um, uh, in response to uh, the Hayes-Tilden a contest of 1876-77, which I can't resist reminding our audience was a, a Harvard-Yale thing. Rutherford B. Hayes, um, whose critics called him Rutherford Fraud, B. Hayes was a Harvard man. Samuel J. Tilden was a Yaley. Bush and Gore, by the way, it was another Harvard-Yale thing, which uh, apparently tied 29-29, but, 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 I, but I digress. <laughs> Harvard won 29-29. Um, that's a reference to a, a, a famous um, Harvard-Yale game in 1969. Um, so the Electoral Count Act was passed um, to, to address some of the, um, the glitches uh, that had surfaced in 1876-77. It's still on the books today. Um, it may need to be revised in various ways. Uh, along comes this important article written um, many years ago suggesting that the very idea of an Electoral Count Act is unconstitutional. And the, uh, the uh, audience member asks, what do I think about that? So I'm personally implicated in all of this. Vasan Kesavan was my student. And in fact, in the very first, and, and, and remains a friend, in the very first episode of this podcast, um, uh, way back in January of 2021, we actually reached out, Andy and I, to Vasan Kesavan to ask him if he wanted to be um, uh, a guest because we were actually talking about certain issues uh, involving the, the, the Electoral College process. Um, he wasn't able to join us, but he's someone that um, I think well of. He wrote another article um, with um, a friend of mine, my law school roommate, Mike Paulson. It's in the um, California Law Review. It's called, Is West Virginia Constitutional? Um, just like, is the Electoral Count Act constitutional or unconstitutional? Um, Voss and Kesavan did not know Mike Paulson. They both knew me. I introduced them to each other, and they got together and wrote this very interesting piece. So it's a small world. So Akila Mar is connected to Voss and Kesavan, um, who's connected to Mike Paulson. Vossen's piece, it's not just that I know Vossen. Vossen's piece is a direct response to um, several paragraphs in my Senate testimony on February 2nd, Groundhog's Day, 1994, um, which, uh, Andy, you and I alluded to in our very first podcast episodes. I said, when it comes to presidential succession, we've got to change the statute. And we've got to say, um, uh, for example, um, we have to rethink the rules about um, what happens when a candidate dies sometime between the very end of the campaign season and Inauguration Day. And I said we should have a statute addressing this. And in my testimony on February 2nd, 1994, um, which I later um, uh, incorporated into a law review article, which we will post on our website I say, some people might say Congress can't do this. Congress can't, by a statute, pre-commit itself to how it's going to handle a, a future um, a controversy um, about um, uh, electoral eligibility, presidential eligibility. And that's exactly 
um, the paragraphs that Vasant Kesavan's article um, is, is responding to. Because I say Congress basically can do this, um, and Vasant actually worries that it can't. I'm going to read you the key passage from this um, Senate testimony, which later became um, an article. And while you're looking that up, I'll let, let our audience know that the 29-29 tie was in 1968, not 1969. Ah, yes. Sorry about that. Um, I, I, I was just a, ch- a child at the time. You know, it, it, uh, that game had to ring uh, fresh in the, in the minds of, of many when we watched the, uh, the game where the Kansas City Chiefs scored 13, had received the ball at 13 seconds to go and uh, were able to tie up the game and send it to overtime. So uh, very reminiscent of Harvard scoring 16 points in the last uh, minute of the game to, uh, to tie the game. And then, of course, the famous headline in the Harvard Crimson on Monday was uh, Harvard wins 29-29. And that's what happened with Rutherford B. Hayes um, that, um, and um, with um, uh, George Bush, for that matter. So here's what I said. Spoil sports might argue that, strictly speaking, any legislation passed today could not conclusively bind a future result-oriented Congress, which would be free to replace the earlier law um, um, uh, before the official counting in, in Congress. One Congress cannot generally bind a successor Congress. And worry warts might fret over whether our proposed legislation should be enacted as a law rather than a joint or concurrent resolution, since it seeks to regulate how votes will be counted in Congress itself. Sections 15 through 18 of Title III, however, and that includes the current Electoral Count Act, do provide a clear precedent for regulating congressional vote counting by law. The spoil sports and worry warts, I argued uh, back in 1994, largely missed the point. The key function of our proposed legislation is to serve as a pre-commitment and focal point. Uh, With our proposed legislation on the books, it will be much more difficult politically for a future result-oriented Congress to change the rules. The principled precedent will be our legislation. Um, uh, uh, Citizens, pundits, reporters, and politicians will be able to point to the plain language in black and white of the United States Code uh, answering the question of the hour. Any deviation from this clear focal point will obviously smack of changing the rules in the middle of the game, indeed, after the game has ended. So I was was making two points. First, um, even if strictly speaking, anything that Congress does today can't quite bind a future Congress, as a practical matter, it will. Now, maybe I was too Pollyannish because today we are seeing actually both parties shatter all sorts of norms and and, and push things to the limit. Um, The second issue that I didn't directly um, uh, address but sort of indirectly suggested is it's perfectly appropriate for Congress to pass a law regulating um, uh, certain aspects of of, of presidential selection that um, are ambiguous or um, underdetermined by the Constitution itself. I think the letter and spirit of the Necessary and Proper Clause invites Congress to pass laws completing the constitutional project in this way. Voss and Kesavan disagreed with that um, analysis, and uh, um, that's actually the springboard for that entire article, as anyone who is willing to look at the article, and, and we'll post it on the website, will see it's a direct response to those two paragraphs that I put forth um, before the United States um, in, in, in congressional testimony. It's not a surprise that the 
that 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 the person um, responding to that would be a student of mine because this is what this this is actually um, how ideas develop. Um, one generation puts forth various ideas, and then the next generation of scholars reacts to them. They don't always agree, um, but you're reacting to the ideas of your your teachers and mentors. And Vasen K. Savan respectfully had a different view um, of the matter. To, just to repeat, my view is the, um, Congress can do these things um, by statute, establishing clearer rules about presidential eligibility and succession and electoral college um, counting, and even if it's an invalid law, it you know even if um, it's still a, a, a kind of a baseline um, a, that everyone will be looking at, and it will look unprincipled if you don't follow. Um, even if we're just a promise or a pledge, or just say we think today behind the veil of ignorance today. Um, this is the best practice before we know whose ox will be gored in five years or 10 years or 20 years. Um, that would be actually a very powerful um, statement, even if strictly speaking, it weren't binding. And even if strictly speaking, uh, a later Congress could deviate from it um, in the middle of the game. It, w- it would look stinky. It would have a stench to it to borrow from Justice Sotomayor's comments from several weeks ago. Is that complicated by the fact that we had the Chiafalo decision, which was a you know unanimous decision by the Supreme Court, um, you know on one aspect of this process? Everything is complicated by Chiafalo because when the Supreme Court unanimously screws the pooch on something important like presidential election, that is not a good thing. I'm sorry, Justice Kagan. You know that I am I'm your friend from way back, and I really admire you. But that was, in my view, not a good decision, and it's not uniquely yours. Um, you wrote the opinion, but all uh, all nine justices joined in it, and I thought that was a bad decision. And I said so very clearly in that opening trilogy of, of episodes in January of last year. I think that was something I talked about in either the first or the second episode. Um, of, of this podcast series. Here's a question from Anand Dharan. I'd love to hear an episode on the common good constitutionalism theory that Adrian Vermeule advances in his forthcoming book. Maybe even have Vermeule as a guest on the podcast, especially since Vermeule takes aim at the originalism for which Professor Amar more or less advocates. It could be a fascinating discussion. So I'll give it due consideration. Thanks for that suggestion. Here's why I might not do it. And this is a podcast episode about this podcast. So um, we are being blunt with our and honest with our audience about um, what we do and don't do, whom we bring on and don't bring on. Um, I like Adrian Vermeule exceedingly. Um, when I visited Harvard, he, he was, um, we became friends but I'm not a fan of um, his new work. And I don't think it actually is a particularly good critique of originalism. I don't think it's worth my time, frankly, and it's not worth your time because time is short. You know, your life is short. This podcast is designed to actually introduce you to the best arguments on each side. And I don't think Adrian is generating the best arguments on this. He's um, veered off into a, a kind of a little personal sort of theocratic vision of the world that has no deep roots in the American constitutional experience. He's basically saying throw out the rule book about how we do constitutional law, a rule book that actually has operated for over 200 years 
and, and he can be a critic of originalism, and that's fine. But the only real valid alternative to originalism, it seems to me, is doctrinalism, um, uh, an appeal to precedent. I don't really think that theocracy is um, a valid American constitutional alternative, and you can call it whatever you want, common good constitutionalism or um, whatever. Um, And on originalism, George Washington and Alexander Hamilton uh, and James Madison are all debating um, what the Constitution really did say. And Abe Lincoln, from the Lyceum Address to his actions as a Constitution, is actually very much a filial pietistic son of the founders. And so is Hugo Black, and and so am I on the left, um, and and Steve Calabrese on the right. And I think, actually, um, we're serious folk. Um, and I think folks on the other side who aren't originalists, the serious versions of that are the um, uh, people who talk about precedent. And, you, and that's why I engage that in, in, in various episodes and in detailed ways. Um, there are some folks who say, well, it's not precedent and it's not originalism. It's just kind of free-floating pragmatism. That's worse. That's just um, making up things as you go along, uh, Richard Posner style, and I'm not a, a fan of it. Adrian, deep down, doesn't believe in law. Um, and so I'm not sure that it, it, that's um, a worthy um, episode. I'll, I'll give it some thought. But Can you give us a uh, sort of a one or two sentence summary of what common good constitutionalism is? What What is the theory? Um, well, he hasn't, you know, he's been writing some pieces in, in various pop, pop journals, um, but it's basically, as I said, a theocratic vision in which um, conservative justices are being encouraged to, to basically reinterpret everything through the prism of uh, um, natural law, Catholic style, as they understand it. Um, and, and that's just not American constitutional law um, in any way, shape, or form. Um, and I'll have to take Adrian seriously when he's been cited 30 times by the Supreme Court, okay, and, and, um, uh, and I'll have to take him seriously when everyone in the law world is actually uh, um, uh, addressing Adrian uh, Vermeule, but they're not, you see. So if I um, have a choice about what I'm going to read and what I'm going to recommend that you read, I'm not going to recommend actually this to you because I don't think it's where it's at, truthfully. Because um, I, 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 I like him exceedingly, um, but... This is verging on the crackpot. This is the end of law. Um, and you need to know that that's what I think. I could have him on um, and do all that, but, but then I'd actually have to spend more time reading this than actually it's worth, because I'd rather reread Lincoln for the fourth time um, or the tenth time, because Lincoln is worth rereading, and so is Hugo Black, um, and so is Alexander Hamilton, um, and and that's what we have in common as Americans. We don't have um, uh, Augustine um, or Aquinas or a pre-Vatican II Catholic dogma um, doctrine um, as um, what unites us as Americans. Um, and, and, and Adrian is just veering off into some project that's fundamentally anti-law, even if it's... Um, I'm deeply spiritual, and I respect him for that because I'm a fellow believer, um, fellow Christian, um, but I distinguish between my views as a believer and what actually is at the heart of the American constitutional project. One final uh, thought about Adrian, his very first, since 
again, I, uh, this is a Marcus constitution. I'm going to tell you, you know, kind of my connections to some of these folks. His very first substantial piece, actually, um, a, a scholarship was a co-authored piece that he wrote in the Harvard Law Review, um, critiquing um, a piece that I wrote. Um, um, I think my name actually appears in the title. It's a direct response to an article I wrote called Intratextualism, um, which was in 1999. And uh, my name appears in, in the title of Adrian's, um, and along with Ernie Young's, um, uh, critique of the piece. Um, and it was an interesting critique. I was invited by the Harvard Law Review to respond to this. I didn't because I was perfectly comfortable with what I said um, the first time around. And I don't think actually I, I needed to re-say it. I didn't frankly think they laid a glove on me. Um, so um, I, I um, but that was a legal piece um, where Adrian was making sort of more or less kind of conventional um, uh, legal points. And when I w- later visited Harvard, as I said, um, my office was actually very close to Adrian's. I would knock on his door from time to time. Um, I quite like him. And I think he's actually one of the smartest people I've met in the business. And I'm glad that he's tending to, to things eternal and spiritual. Um, but I think actually his effort to try to connect, you know, his spiritual journey to the American constitutional project is uh, completely um, misguided and is not going to go anywhere because it can't, because it's so antithetical to so much of two and a half centuries of American constitutional law, which really do revolve much more tightly around three poles, pragmatism, perhaps, precedentialism, definitely, and um, originalism, text history and structure, uh, and not actually theology. Okay, now we have a question from Robert Mintz, once again. Um, Never mind whether Congress has the power to prescribe a code of ethics for Supreme Court justices. Why doesn't the court voluntarily adopt the the judicial code of ethics to govern itself? Also, what is the relationship between good behavior and the enumerated grounds for impeachment? Shouldn't ethical violations constitute a breach of good behavior and if so, is that sufficient to remove a justice by impeachment? More great questions. Thank you so much, uh, Robert Mintz. So I do think, he said, you bracketed the question that Congress does have the power by, by statute to enact a code of, of legal ethics um, applicable to uh, Supreme Court justices. It can do so for lower court judges, too. It could come up with rules of procedure that govern even the Supreme Court and rules of evidence that, co- uh, um, that govern the Supreme Court and procedure both in civil cases, federal rules of civil procedure, criminal cases, and rules of criminal procedure. So Congress has that power, and it has that power under the necessary and proper clause of the Constitution, letter and spirit, which is the same clause, in my view, that authorizes Congress to um, uh, regulate the presidential electoral co- uh, count, count um, issues um, and, and various presidential election issues. It's the same clause. They can regulate Article 3, and they can also regulate the, the judiciary, including the Supreme Court, Article 2, the, the presidential um, selection process. So I think Congress can clearly do it by statute, but you're right. If Congress doesn't do it by statute, nothing would prevent the Supreme Court itself from, or its justices from pledging allegiance to a certain uh, code. Much of what the Supreme Court does is by unwritten tradition, and they could, by tradition and custom, pledge themselves to a certain code, and I, and I think they should. 
Now, the question is also, what might be the relationship between an ethical lapse and their tenure of office? The Constitution says that they hold, Article 3 says they hold their office. It doesn't quite say for life. It says for good behavior. We often just um, paraphrase that as life tenure, but for good behavior. What's the relationship between that language of Article 3, good behavior? I'll read you the passage. This is Article 3, Section 1, Sentence 2. The judges, both of the Supreme and inferior courts, shall hold their offices during good behavior and shall at stated times receive for their services a compensation which shall not be diminished during their continuance in office. Now, what's the relationship of that to the paragraph that appears that's the very beginning of Article 3, the paragraph that um, immediately precedes it, which is the very last paragraph of Article 2. The president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States, that includes judges and justices, shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treasury, treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Are treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors the only ways to actually get rid of a judge or justice? Is this good behavior simply um, a pure kind of cross-reference to the impeachment process, treason, uh, um, bribery, other high crimes and misdemeanors? And remember, that's a process that, as we talked about in our episodes with Philip Bobbitt, requires a majority of the House to uh, impeach and, and two-thirds of the Senate to convict. So some people said good behavior is just actually um, incorporating by reference the impeachment rules, which to repeat are basically limited to treason, bribery, and, uh, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. Um, I don't think so. I think that judges can be actually um, removed from office, even if actually they're not impeached and convicted. Um, I put forth my reasons for that in Chapter 6 of America's Constitution, a biography, which was written in 2005. And um, um, I say, here's at least one other way to oust um, uh, a judge. To pass under the Necessary and Proper Clause, pure congressional statute, a law that uh, makes certain things criminal behavior and provides as a penalty for uh, that crime, um, immediate removal from office. You might say, well, Akil, you know, and and Congress did such a thing. It actually made it a crime for federal officers to take a bribe. And uh, um, this is Congress in 1790. George Washington signed it and said that um, upon conviction, you automatically forfeit your office. And that could be your um, cabinet office, but it also could be your judicial office. And you say, well, Akil, that is bribery. It's treason, bribery, other high crimes and misdemeanors. Fine, but it's not through the impeachment process because you could be ousted even if a majority of the House thinks you're, you're innocent. And one-third plus or one-third plus one or and one-third plus one, if every member of the House thinks you're innocent, if every member of the Senate thinks you're innocent, you could still be um, ousted because you're actually indicted by an ordinary grand jury, convicted by an ordinary trial jury. In the impeachment process, it doesn't matter what the president thinks. He can't save you. Oh, but in this um, criminal conviction process, he could save you with a pardon, um, either before or, or after the fact. So my view is 
um, here's at least one other way that you can be ousted as judge. Yes, if you're impeached and convicted, that would throw you out. And I was involved actually in an impeachment process of a, of a corrupt federal judge named Thomas Porteous. I'll come back to that in, in just a second. So yeah, you, could, you can be ousted of, 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 when there's impeachment and conviction, according to Article 2, the last paragraph, but you can also be ousted by an ordinary criminal statute um, that you're convicted of having violated where the statute provides that the automatic penalty or permissible penalty is removal from, from office. You say, well, what's your protection there? Your protection is the protection of, that everyone else, the House passed that law, the Senate passed that law, the, Senate, the president signed it, or else um, he vetoed it and, and it passed over his veto. You get um, um, a grand jury indictment. You, you have proof beyond reasonable doubt, typically by a unanimous um, jury. You have all the due process protections at trial. Um, the president can pardon you. You get the same protections that someone does whose life is, whose very life is at stake in, say, a capital case. Uh, and, but those are a slightly different set of protections than in the impeachment process. So Amar's view is good behavior isn't just a cross-reference to the impeachment process. It, um, so the, um, and, 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 the, and the best piece on this, which I cite in my um, uh, 2005 book, was written by one of my students. Her name is Maria Simon. She was one of my students at Columbia Law School, and she wrote this really um, brilliant piece. She went on, I think, to clerk for the Supreme Court. It's called Treason, Bribery, and Other Not-So-Good Behavior. Um, and it's about this early congressional statute that, again, to repeat, provided that upon conviction, you could automatically be removed. One final thing, Thomas Porteous, who's he? He was this corrupt judge. He was convicted in the ordinary way of, of um, uh, bribery, taking bribes. But even after that, um, because the statute wasn't invoked, he was still sitting on the bench and drawing his fellows, um, his, his salary as a convicted felon. And so there needed to be this separate process in which the House said, we think he's guilty. And the Senate, you know, by two thirds vote said, um, we think he's guilty, too. And I was involved in, 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 as an advisor to Adam Schiff um, and other um, uh, people in, in the House of Representatives in, in that impeachment process. So if I understand this correctly, the um, the statutes that you talked about, Congress being able to pass and the president signing regarding removal from office uh, for things like bribery, or in this case, bribery specifically, um, is that meant to be a stand-in for, for good behavior? Is it, in other words, that you're saying that that one way that you can engage in good behavior in not good behavior is by violating various statutes. Bingo. You've got to just, so let me read you a passage, actually a paragraph from the book. So before you do, uh, just to, so that therefore this would not apply to, uh, the president, right? So in other words, they, the Congress couldn't pass a statute that says you could, the president could be removed for these reasons. Um, because he doesn't have the standard of good behavior? Is that I didn't correct? talk about that question. It's a great question, um, and uh, I, I need to think about it a bit. I mean, um, it's, it's interesting because, you know, we have this question about whether the president can be tried while he's in office at all, other than for impeachment, right? And you've addressed that in terms of having, like, a local grand jury. But... Um, so that would that would that's kind of a different issue, but it would it would weigh on that issue. Absolutely. Here's the, the what I wrote um, at, at page two twenty two of my book, America's Constitution: A Biography. 
um, which was written in two, uh, published in 2005. Above and beyond impeachment, ordinary criminal courts could entertain prosecutions brought against federal judges, and Congress by law could provide for automatic removal from office upon due conviction. For example, Congress might decide that accepting a bribe was disqualifying behavior per se and provide by generally applicable law that any federal judge convicted of bribery in a criminal court must immediately forfeit his judgeship. In fact, the first Congress did just that in the 1790 bribery statute. This enactment built on foundations laid by several states whose constitutions and or statutes made clear that, quote, conviction in a court of law, unquote, could result in automatic forfeiture of judicial office. Thus, the federal constitution provided for two distinct removal tracks, one via ordinary criminal conviction and the other via an extraordinary political ju- uh, judicial process of impeachment. Um, now, back to your question now that I've had 30 seconds to think about it because you just sprung it on me without telling me in our in our pre, pre, pre-rehearsal that you were going to ask me about I that. I just thought of it. <laughs> well, it's a great question. Um, uh, so I think you, you, you nailed it when you said, of course, a sitting president is immune on Amar's view from criminal prosecution against his will. Um, he could consent to it, um, but then in a sense, he might be consenting to his own removal as well if convicted or something like that. Um, but, but, um, uh, judges, sitting judges have no automatic immunity from, uh, criminal prosecution, neither do sitting cabinet officers or lower court judges. But I believe structurally that, uh, nor does a vice president, um, but structurally a president can't be forced to be tried um, against his will in a state court or even, um, on state charges or in a federal court on federal charges. Uh, um, and put differently, I think that because presidents uniquely actually are picked by the nation as a whole, they should only be ousted by the nation as a whole. And so you really need to involve the, the in general, the, the house, entire House of Representatives and the Senate, remember that in an ordinary criminal prosecution, you just have a grand jury indictment, but that comes from one city or county. You have an ordinary criminal conviction, that's one city or county. And every president, pick your your favorite one, has done things that are deeply unpopular in some parts of the country. That's part of the job description sometimes is to, to do what's in the national interest, even if that makes you unpopular in this region or that region, this city or that city. Well, that leaves members of Congress and then, the, you know, some of the arguments that you just enumerated wouldn't really apply. They're, they're elected locally. Perhaps members of Congress could pass a statute saying that members of Congress, uh, you know, would be, can, can be expelled from office if they are convicted of a particular crime. Um, and then, then the, I think that would be a stand in for the question. If that was allowed, then that would say that, uh, this standard as it applies to the court is not a stand in for good behavior because good behavior is not something that applies to, uh, spe- you know, specifically to congressional uh, members. Um, but so it, it might be it might be even easier just because um, the argument would be Congress doesn't even have um, uh, um, the, the argument would be you could only uh, eliminate a congressperson by um, expulsion an expulsion vote of two thirds of the members of that house, or you could say you know by analogy that's. That's the impeachment analog, but in addition to that, there's the ordinary criminal thing. And just as judges can be impeached or convicted in an ordinary criminal case, 
members of Congress can be expelled by two-thirds vote of their own house or um, ousted by an ordinary criminal case. And they, again, have the same protections that everyone else does um, of, um, you know, a, a criminal statute with all the, the, the safeguards of a criminal statute. Let me finally, since you insist on going way beyond what the, 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 the audience members have asked and asked me harder questions, which I, I wasn't quite prepared to deal with. So, um, but, you know, uh, let's see what I can do on the fly. I want to read you Article 1, Section 6. Um, the senators and representatives, dot, 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 shall, in all cases except treason, felony, and breach of the peace, be privileged from arrest during their attendance at the session of their respective houses. Um, now, in fact, breach of the peace meant sort of any criminal. It was a, um, a term of art for any criminal violation. So, in fact, members of the Senate and representatives are only immunized from civil lawsuits that might take them off the floor, but not from criminal prosecutions. And that was the deep background of Article 1, Section 6. So my position would be the same for Congress people and judges to repeat. Judges can be impeached and uh, convicted and removed or can be subject to ordinary criminal um, law and uh, if convicted in ordinary criminal proceeding you know, um, ousted. And the same, I think, should be, um, is permissible for House and Senate members and for cabinet officers, but the, and for vice presidents. Vice presidents are subject to impeachment, but also um, a, crim, a, a sitting vice president can be criminally prosecuted. See uh, Agnew, um, who was indicted while um, in, in office and then uh, stepped down. And, uh, but not presidents who are structurally unique. Okay, well, I think that's a there's room for more there, but I think that's plenty for today. Um, okay, Andy's next. letting me off the hook, um, uh, so thank you for that, Andy. <laughs> now we have a question from Joe, um, and Joe doesn't provide his last name. Neither does he perform provide a question, but he makes a comment. Is it coming from a, a White House website? <laughs> Joe from Washington says. <laughs> As you describe the filibuster as it works today, it strikes me as a form of cancel culture, shut down speech without explanation. The filibuster is another form of voter suppression. Wow, that's a really interesting idea. Um, I think it nicely uh, connects to a quote from Michael Bennett that we featured in which I think he called it the secret filibuster or something, which he says is actually the opposite of, of real debate because um, basically there's just an, an ending of a conversation um, and, and that's not what the, the world's most deliberative assembly um, was all about. So nice point. Thank you for that, Joe. Okay. Now we have. Um... Are, are, are you sure, you know, this isn't from Joe Biden? I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's you know, not from Joe Schmo. Also, I don't know. It's probably not from Joe Manchin. Right. There you have a fair point. Um, now we have from John Misiki. Um, would be interesting to invite Rand Herschel or Mark Tushnet or Gerald Rosenberg to discuss any of their books on judicial review slash judicial supremacy particularly in these times of partisan divide. And I think it would be. And here's why I probably, I may not do it, but, um, uh, but it, my, my answer is going to be different than the real answer. So I think these guys are doing very substantial work. 
uh, Tashinet and Herschel um, and Rosenberg. Um, and, and I think Adrian's stuff is becoming um, outlandish and cranky. And so I, I'm not sure I want to give him a platform. Um, but, and I don't feel that way about these very distinguished scholars. But Cards on the Table, their, their, their approach is more political science. Um, and I do teach in the poli-sci department. But um, much of what we do here is more conventional, just straight-up law. Uh, Tushnet is a Yale Law School graduate and, 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 te- and teaches in law school, but the other two are more poli ish um, And here's the truth. I haven't read their books with great care, and before I brought them on the podcast, I'd want to do that, and there's only so much I can do in a given week. So I, I think you're right. Um, uh, their work is substantial. They, they deserve um, to be um, uh, highlighted somewhere. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do it because only so much time I have um, in a day, and... Um, and, and their work, um, although very significant, is slightly tangential to, uh, to some of my obsessions. Now we have my favorite question from Thomas Logue. Along with everything else, Professor Amar is an astonishing, astonishingly prolific writer. I would love to hear about the mechanics and methods of his writing, his writing schedule, where he writes, whether he works from outlines, if so, how detailed, how he organizes his notes and research. Something along the lines of the old Paris Review interviews of writers or Robert Caro's recent book on his writing method. And now the reason this is my favorite question. He says, by the way, to listen to you polymaths go at it is an intellectual roller coaster ride. Hats off to you, Dr. Lipka, in the way you keep up with Akhil Amar, who I think is America's greatest public intellectual. Well, thank you, um, uh, Judge Logue. And I say Judge Logue because he's a very distinguished judge. Um, Annie and I did some events in Florida together. Um, we did a live podcast that, that, you, that the audience members um, heard a few weeks back. Annie actually left early. I stayed on in Florida and did another set of events. And Judge Logue actually was a very distinguished judge in South Florida, came to, 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 um, uh, to, to that event, and I was just so, so honored to to have him there. This podcast aims to be useful to um, very impressive people, to, to people who are um, Senate staffers and maybe senators themselves and, and, and judges and, and maybe future justices and, and, and judicial law clerks and the like. So we're so honored, uh, Judge, that you listen to the podcast and, and you talk about Andy keeping up with me, but I got to keep up with him. Um, and as you've just heard, he, he does put me through the paces. Um, one other thing, uh, Judge, before I answer your question, I'm very grateful to Judge Logue because he's he's read you know much of my work and engaged it you know very thoughtfully. He's read it very carefully, and he's been kind enough to post reviews unsolicited. I, I might add, but but post five star reviews um, uh, on various sites like um, uh, Amazon uh, and and Goodreads and and. One big ask to all of you out there, this is a free podcast. We do it every week. Um, takes a lot of energy and, and effort for, for Andy and yours truly. We don't ask um, very much uh, of you. Um, but if you have had a chance, here's a big ask to um, have read um, any of the books, especially the most recent one, um, which I'm you know very proud of, the words that made us. If you had a chance to read the book and you liked it, Oh, we'd be very grateful. I would be very grateful. And I know, you know, Andy, as my friend, would be too if you were willing to post a five-star review on Amazon and or Goodreads as Judge 
Locas, and, and, and thank you, Judge, um, uh, for um, your very kind uh, words um, um, in this uh, comment question, but also um, in your review. And, and the audience should know that was unsolicited, but, 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 but very much appreciated. Here's actually my biggest point about um, my writing approach. And, and I talked a little bit about this in an earlier episode, but I think you can't write without reading. And I think a lot about what my favorite books are and why I liked them. And with each new book that I conceptualize, I try to think about which specific books is it most like in which respects. So, for example, I'm writing, I, 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 I write America's Constitution is about a text. And so I'm going to think especially about books that are about texts, like Pauline Mayer's book on the Declaration of Independence, American Scripture, or Gary Wills's book about the Federalist Papers explaining America, um, or about the Declaration of Independence inventing America, or about the Gettysburg Address, Lincoln at Gettysburg, because those are books about texts. Um, oh, some of my books, they, they aim to be historical. So I think a lot about uh, this book is more like Gordon Wood's Creation of the American Republic because it's intellectual history. Oh, but this new book is more narrative. It has more characters. It's more like Empire of Liberty. Oh, and Andy said, oh, your book is like revolutionary characters because you actually are talking about some of the specific founding fathers. So writing, in my view, begins with reading. Um, and, um, and then I tend in my mind, before I've even started, to have a pretty substantial conceptual outline. So I outline the book as a whole um, in my head, uh, maybe on paper. I actually map out the individual chapters and maybe even the subheadings within each chapter. I told, we talked before about writing little five to 10 page term papers. So I, I have the schema to begin. And then I spend a lot of effort on chapter one, to the very beginning of chapter one and getting all the way through chapter one. And by the time I've done that, I actually have a pretty good sense of the kind of rhythm and flow I'm going to have for the book as a whole. Now I'm just filling in the schema. And sometimes I actually write the ending pretty early on uh, because it's really important how the book is going to end. And sometimes I even foreshadow that, at least explicitly or implicitly in, in my opening or definitely in my head. I not only know how I'm beginning, but how maybe I, I think I'm going to end. Often I write the end before I write some of the middle. And now I'm just working, uh, I'm just filling, um, filling things in. Now here's the final stage. Um, after, um, so, so I've, I've got now enough of, of the book filled in. Sometimes I have little things like, you know, check this out, you know, a, a check, uh, a re- a recheck this, look this up. Um, so they're, they're little notes to myself. I send it to someone like Andy to, 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 to read um, the first draft very carefully. But then I always go back. And Andy always, you know, gives me all sorts of wonderful comments. Um, he's not the only one, but maybe, you know, he, Steve Calabresi, a couple of other, Ed Larson, ha- have been my, my really go-to friends. Um, Chris Duggan and a few others just actually read the manuscript and, and give me some feedback. I started with reading, and then at the end, I have to go back and reread. I go back and reread to make sure I haven't got anything wrong. And I go back and uh, reread also because I want to make sure that I give proper attribution and credit um, to the people um, um, on whom I'm building. Because sometimes great authors can be so influential that, that they get so deeply into your head, into my head, that I actually forget that it was their idea. I think it was mine. 
um, when it's actually, and only when I reread at the end, do I realize, oh my gosh, I thought this was an Akil Amar, you know, brilliant insight. Actually, Gordon Wood really did say it first, or, or Ed Morgan, um, or Gary Wills, or what have you. And I want to make sure, um, just as a matter of, of proper academic ethics and a good manners, um, etiquette, ethics and etiquette, make sure that I, I give um, these uh, authors sort of proper attribution. So this takes me back to the Vermeule question and the Rand, uh, Herschel, Mark Teshnet, Gerald Rosenberg question. I'm thinking a lot in my books about the, the citations and the notes. Whom am I actually telling the reader is, is worth reading because because I think I'm trying to add a lot of value by curate by telling you what I think I've learned but also what I think is worth your while to read um, and that's what my end notes are all about and sometimes there are people I disagree with but I think they really have the best argument on the other side and if you want to see you know I try to um, uh, um, uh, maybe summarize it but if you want to see more here's the thing to read that I think is the best counter argument and my claim is Actually, I like some of Adrian's earlier stuff. I do not like Adrian Vermeil. I don't love, actually, um, his, his recent trend, and I'm not sure that I want to um, spend all sorts of time telling my um, audience that this is what they should be engaging rather than um, some of the other people and ideas that we've tried to feature in this podcast, like Bob Woodward, you know, for, for, for example, you know, who has written so many epic books and keeps cranking out epic book after epic book. In later episodes, uh, Judge Lowe, I'm going to say a little bit more about you know, how I work, the time of day, you know, how I've tried to structure. Um, but big picture is read really carefully, start writing little notes to yourself because you don't want to actually have to stop every time you, um, you, you hit a little bit of a stumbling block. Sometimes you just, you know, skip over it, um, have some, some gaps and thing, especially figure out how you're going to end it, fill in the gaps. Show it to a fr- a friends who can uh, help you, but then at the very end, reread everything. So uh, I think it's important there to note that we are going to come back to this um, and talk, as you just said, in some of the mechanical things you use a pen or a pencil, or, um, and you know what time of day, and you know all this kind of thing. I think it's actually you know very interesting. Um, I'm reminded I attended a uh, a lecture once by. Yale uh, writing coach uh, or writing, not coach, but instructor, Ann Fadiman. Uh, Professor Fadiman was talking about um, ways that her students uh, have found to motivate themselves to write. And the one that really stayed with me was this uh, student who had a, a notes all around her room that said B-I-C. And uh, B-I-C stood for butt in chair. Which yes. is basically, in order to write, you have to write. The Germans, I think, call this Zitzfleisch or something. Um, so it's a, it's a certain, yes. Uh, and she's right. Discipline. You just got to sit. So, so yes, um, you got to give yourself the time. And I, um, when I was under um, some deadline pressure, okay, got to crank out four pages every day. Just if I, and if I do that for you know, uh, 20 days straight. Oh, I've got something. Um, and, and once you, once you kind of, it becomes a routine, um, then it becomes a little bit, a habit, a little easier. And the four pages aren't always great. 
So I have to go back sometimes and redo them, sometimes even check them out. But at least every day I, I did try to get something done. Absolutely. And there'll be more of this as we as we talk about it. If I could just say one other thing, because I, as an author, am really interested in, in this stuff. So I've asked some of my um, author friends. I asked, for example, Douglas Brinkley, who is, you know, just ridiculously prolific, like, you know, what his uh, tricks of the trade are, how he does it. Um, I love, um, uh, uh, I used to love C-SPAN in the old days. Brian Lamb, one of the, the really the, the, creator, the founder of C-SPAN, would actually talk to authors and he'd also often ask them about their little writing routines and all the rest. I, I think it was on that show that one very famous um, historian, uh, Forrest MacDonald, said that he actually, you know, wrote all of his first drafts um, um, in the nude. <laughs> in a certain space and like, like, you know, and I thought, well, there's an image that I'm never going to be able to get out of my head. I think very famously um, in the Bangle song, Eternal Flame, I, I think that at least the urban legend is um, that Susanna Hoff uh, actually snuck into the studio late at night and actually um, recorded, um, uh, laid down her vocal track for that in the nude. So um, there you go. Uh, I, I confess that I actually write fully uh, clad. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> okay. And uh, so we'll come back to this, Judge Logue. Um, Alan Ostergren writes, I am interested to hear Professor Amar's thoughts on younger abstention doctrine and Texas SB8. Is there slash should there be an argument for an exception to this abstention doctrine when a law is crafted to avoid pre-enforcement review? It's an utterly brilliant question. Um, that's very technical, and I'm not going to fully answer it, but, but um, uh, I'm just going to explain to our audience a little bit the background behind the question. In an earlier episode with Ed Whalen, I talked about how some laws are um, challenged, not anticipatorily, um, but simply the, um, uh, where Amar sues the government saying, you know, you've, you're threatening to do something and you can't do that to me. But sometimes that's not the way, and, and the court decides whether the government is acting legally or illegally, judicial review of a, um, a government practice or um, a, a, a government statute. Um, but sometimes judicial review occurs when the, um, basically I've, I've violated the law. I think it's unconstitutional law. I violate it. The government comes after me. It prosecutes me. It's Connecticut VMR, people VMR, state VMR, and I raise the Constitution as a shield, defensively, not as a spear, not as a sword, not Amar v. Connecticut, Amar v. State, or using, I think, a fiction called Ex parte Young, where I sue the Attorney General or something, but they come after me, um, and I say, yeah, I did it, I admit I did it, I think I have an absolute constitutional right, I did it, because this statute's unconstitutional. Okay, now, this so-called Texas vigilante law was cleverly designed to prevent individuals from suing the government in advance because uh, the government actually wasn't enforcing the law. Um, private um, um, deputies um, were allowed to uh, enforce the law. Here's where um, a case called Younger versus Harris comes in, and which leads to a doctrine called Younger abstention. Um, when I have violated an arguably unconstitutional law, state law, and I'm prosecuted by the government in state court, I'm generally not permitted to jump across the street and try to initiate my own lawsuit in a federal court. Um, what the Supreme Court has said is 
Um, once you're in a state court, there you stay. You can raise your argument as a defense. Maybe you might lose because the state judge is picked is is a state employee and maybe more inclined to side with the state. But then you can take an appeal to a state appellate court, and I would say, yeah, but state appellate court, same problem. Oh, but then you can appeal to the state supreme court, and you might say it's the same problem. They're picked by the state government, but from the state supreme court, you can try to get the United States Supreme Court to review and reverse by a thing called certiorari. Um, back in the old days, rid of error. So younger abstention um, is a doctrine in which once I have violated the law um, and I'm prosecuted in a pending state court prosecution, I can't jump across the street and, and start a relitigation in federal court. I got to stick in the state court system all the way up through the state court appellate system and then to the United States Supreme Court. So that's a thing called younger abstention. Once I'm in state court, there I stay. But you might say, Ah, but that's in a world where um, there might have been other opportunities for me not to violate the law, but to actually refrain from engaging in this um, uh, uh, conduct and instead uh, use the Constitution as a spear and sue the attorney general or something in federal court using a thing called the ex parte young fiction. Okay, Um, so you might say, well, Amar, you're stuck in state court, but it's your own darn fault because you shouldn't have violated the law. Um, um, You should have. Um, if you want to get into federal court, you should have brought in, you should have refrained from engaging in that conduct. You're an abortionist or, or whatever, um, and, and instead brought a suit in federal court. But this law in Texas is designed to prevent me from actually um, being able to get into a federal court anticipatorily. And so the question asks, given that, should we make a, a, an exception to younger abstention once I'm in state court, once I've engaged in something and I'm being sued, should I be allowed actually to jump the track and get over to federal court, given that this law is so cleverly designed to um, uh, um, prevent anticipatory review? It's a very nice question. I've teed it up. It's absolutely brilliant. That's actually um, what several of the justices at the Supreme Court oral argument were actually thinking about a little bit. But in the end of the day, they said we're not going to create a new exception or, um, for younger abstention. Just to be just to be clear, if you were going to sue in federal court, um, you would have been suing saying that your constitutional rights have been violated. Is that right? Yes. Or yes. that or that they would be violated if you. Yes. Um, yeah. So. Now, uh, under the younger abstention doctrine that you said, I noticed that you said that you have to go from the state supreme court, or what, or like in New York would be the court of appeals, but the highest court, right. um, to uh, to the to the U.S. Supreme Court. So you don't get Correct. to go from the state supreme court to let's say the federal you know appeals court or something like that. You only get one shot. Now, given right. that the supreme court grants certiorari to such a small percentage of cases that come up in any given year or, you know, ever, um, that's, that feels like a very weak federal remedy. You have no access to the lower federal courts. You can't preemptively sue in the in federal courts um, in this law. Um, and your only chance at avoiding what might be a, a state-level prejudice is a long shot, a crapshoot, with certiorari at the federal level, um, and given the innovation of this law, now we might very well see lots of laws like this, and that would flood, you know, the 
this mechanism that the, that the, the and, and now you see why it's such a brilliant question and why maybe there should be an exception to younger um, abstention in this situation, which is why it's a really, really great technical question. And um, since this is a Marcus constitution, and I want to tell you about my ideas about all sorts of things, the very first um, uh, article I ever published as an article, as opposed to stu- a student note, I wrote as a student, it appeared in the Boston University Law Review the year I was trying to get a teaching job. It helped me get a teaching job at all sorts of top schools, including Yale and Stanford. And it was all about state courts versus federal courts. And my, one of my suggestions was, Andy, precisely that we should have um, lower federal courts and or federal appellate courts take some of the load off of the United States Supreme Court. So they should be hearing more cases, if not initially, maybe on appeal from, in effect, that the state um, judici- judicial system. There was a time when, in, in effect, in the 1960s, and early 70s, federal habeas corpus was a little like that for certain people who were convicted of state crimes. They could kind of relitigate certain things by going to a federal district court and then going to a federal appellate court after that. And then this, both the Supreme Court in various uh, in a whole bunch of cases um, and the uh, and the Congress in a statute called EDPA, the Effective Death Penalty Act, but um, uh, a closed federal courthouse doors in, in, in various ways. Um, the, a great scholar who really influenced me in all of this and who actually wrote a really interesting piece um, about younger abstention um, um, and all these doctrines that emerged when he was a law clerk at the United States Supreme Court. He clerked first for Thurgood Marshall on the Second Circuit and then for William Brandon on the Supreme Court is my hero and mentor, um, uh, Owen Fisk. Professor Marsh shared that article with me, and I can tell you, if you want to take it on, be prepared to get into the into the weeds big time. Uh, well, brilliant maybe, article, but uh, and maybe we can put it up on the podcast if people you know want to want to get into the weeds. We 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 have a really sophisticated audience, some of whom actually um, are are going to be absolutely capable of 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 doing that. Okay, well, bring your weed whacker. Um, so we're almost at the end of these questions, but I think uh, given the the uh, time constraints of the podcast, I do uh, want to save a question or two for another time. Yes. And uh, let's just take a moment, though, to discuss uh, what you mentioned earlier. You alluded to this notion of um, our podcast uh, standards, I suppose, and, and where we choose to appear in podcast services. Um, and some of the recent uh, brouhaha with uh, Spotify. Yeah, so Neil Young is boycotting Spotify until they um, uh, sever their connections with or at least um, push back hard against um, uh, Joe Rogan, at least insofar as he's promulgating all sorts of um, irresponsible um, uh, 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 information about um, not not untrue and irresponsible claims about um, uh, vaccines. Um, and, and COVID, um, and Joni Mitchell has suggested she's going to do the same thing. So you might say, well, Amar and Lipka, why are you um, still doing business with Spotify when uh, Neil Young is um, cutting ties and, and, uh, and Joni Mitchell and there may be others? And one uh, answer, there's several, we're, we're not quite Neil Young and, and Joni Mitchell in terms of our, our uh, salience and the, uh, uh, the effectiveness 
of this possibly um, to put pressure on Spotify is much is different for um, you know superstars like uh, Young and, and Mitchell. But also note that they their Spotify um, content is very different than ours. It's um, great music that they composed often and performed long ago, and that doesn't directly engage Rogan. So when they take themselves off of Spotify, they're not missing an opportunity to to contest Rogan. They're actually by taking themselves off, giving themselves some some, some publicity um, to oppose Rogan. We oppose Rogan and some of this anti you know vaxxer nonsense and and COVID disinformation in a different way by actually staying on the air by trying to reach as many ears as possible on Spotify and um, other platforms. Actually, Spotify I think is not. A, a, a particular prominent one for us. Apple is much more prominent. Podbeam, um, maybe um, m- most of all. Um, but um, but we um, do not endorse Joe Rogan's false claims. We oppose them, and we're going to use this podcast to say what we think about uh, important um, uh, topics um, in, in the news. And we're going we're open to have responsible people of opposing viewpoints come on and we engage them respectfully. We don't agree with everything that Philip Bobbitt says about um, uh, um, Senate trials of uh, ex-officers, but we have them on the podcast and we respectfully um, uh, engage. We didn't, we may not agree with everything that Ed Whalen says on the left or maybe everything that Linda Greenhouse, uh, Ed Raley says on the right, or everything that Linda Greenhouse might believe on the left, but we want you to, to, to hear them in their own voice and, and we can and, and, and have a discussion. And you will hear the arguments, uh, uh, audience members, on both sides. Um, that's what we do, but we bring on people who are respectable and not kind of crackpots because your time is valuable and so is ours. So we, we try to curate so that you heard the best senators on both sides on the filibuster debate, um, the best arguments um, at the Supreme Court about precedent and, and Andy's in my response to that. That's what we try to provide week after week after week. And we thank you um, for your loyalty. And remember, my big ask is if you've read the um, uh, any of the books, especially the most recent one, and liked them, please put a five-star review on um, Amazon and or Goodreads. So I agree with everything you just said, and I would like also, this is not a disagreement, but a supplement, we also hope that uh, you will review the podcast and uh, and give it oh, a yes. five-star review of the podcast. Um, now, why do we care about that? Well, first of all, you know, other people may see it and say, oh, this is worth listening to, and so, you know, we want people to hear what we have to say and what others have to say. Um, but also, we want other podcast groups to take note of our podcast, and uh, and so that more people can can have access to it. And you know, w- when podcasts are are widely and positively reviewed, that happens. Okay, well, readers and listeners, um, thank you again for these great questions, and uh, keep them coming because I, I I really enjoy the questions, and it's it's. Uh, it's he just likes bounce. giving me a workout. <laughs> well, <laughs> making me sweat. <laughs> you're you're, ma- you're making my job easier. You're preloading my my uh, my weapon here. See you next time. Okay. Bye.